This is They Create Worlds, episode 158, Computer Space. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Today, we look at a game that we thought we covered before, but actually we haven't. We have covered the glory of the Galaxy game, but we haven't really looked at computer space. So, of course, we must get into our rocket ships and then fly off and figure out how computers work in space. Yeah, something like that. So, of course, today we are talking about the game that started it all, the game that is generally considered the first true commercial video game, Computer Space, created by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney for Nutting Associates, and launched just over 50 years ago at the tail end of 1971. Now, I know we talked about something with Atari and... The Galaxy game and computer space and whether or not Nolan Bushnell found this, that, or the other thing. (laughs) Who knows? However, we've really talked about this before, haven't we? We've talked about computer space. We've talked about Nutting Associates. We've talked about a lot of this before. We may have even talked about this thing called Atari. Atari? What's that? I don't think we've we've ever covered that. that. That sounds pretty obscure, even for us. Yes, of course, we do go back to that Atari well and that Nolan Bushnell well quite a bit, just because there's so much there. Yes, we have, in those contexts, discussed the creation of computer space before. We've also done an episode on Nutting Associates, which is the company that manufactured the game. So why do it again? Well, as is always the case when we take on a topic again, there are new angles and there is new information that allows us to take a look at aspects of the creation of this game in a different way than we did before. We are not going to spend two hours doing a deep dive on how Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney created computer space, because we've done a lot of that material before. We're still going to cover it, because this is our computer space episode, and so we want it to be somewhat comprehensive. We want it to be able to stand on its own. But that isn't really the point in doing this again. No, the point is to really reevaluate what computer space meant in its marketplace 50 years ago. There's been a lot of discussion about, was computer space a failure? Did it do okay? Was it a success? Was it the beginning of video games? Was it just a weird side thing that fizzled out and really has nothing to do with the beginning of video games? How does it fit into the larger context of the coin-op industry in which it was being launched into? The consensus has largely been, and I've been guilty of this myself, I think, as well in some of my work, is to downplay its success or lack thereof and focus on the fact that it only sold a few units, it didn't have much penetration, and that it was Nolan Bushnell's follow-up game created by Al Alcorn, Pong, that actually truly launched the industry. This has been abetted by Nolan Bushnell himself. Shameless self-promoter as he is, he's more than willing to admit that computer space didn't exactly set the world on fire, and people have actually taken his lead a lot in downplaying it. 
Bill Nutting, who did not speak very much before he died. He did give one interview to the author uh, Stephen Bloom of Video Invaders, where he also talked about how it really wasn't that successful. And I think the combination of that one Nutting soundbite combined with Nolan's candid acceptance of the fact that the game didn't do as well as he had hoped has created this narrative. But some of us, even more prominently than me, I think uh, Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, have been reevaluating that recently. And because of that reevaluation by going back into old newspapers in the early 1970s and seeing articles in which computer space is mentioned, as well as a fascinating individual that I uncovered in a newspaper article and then actually interviewed, will give a new perspective on where exactly the game fits in. Of course, we'll get into all of that in the latter half of the episode, because we will start with the creation of the game again, but there's a lot of new material and some very new and interesting ways of looking at where exactly computer space fits in. I wonder if it's more like how with the Apple II and Japan in our previous episode, where we talked about how it just had such an impactful moment with a whole bunch of people who could afford it. And if you could afford it, you had the resources and the drive in order to really develop technology forward. In Japan, we had a lot of games and stuff that were coming about because of the Apple II. We've had a lot of that in the United States. So what I'm wondering here with computer space is it having a more impactful role on a whole bunch of separate individual people and really helping them to drive them forward in order to further develop stuff, very much like how the Apple II was very inspirational to a lot of technology people. Sure, there's absolutely a little bit of that to the story, probably not as much as the Apple II crowd, but even just the way, not so much that it influenced tech, but in the way it signaled and helped to shift the way coin-operated games were being consumed by the general public. It was kind of a key stepping stone on the way to the modern, in the context of the early video game industry, 40 years old now, but the modern video game arcade. There's a lot to dive into there, uh, not just the creation of the game, though we will touch on that again. There's going to be some good stuff in this episode, I think. Now, if I recall correctly, we talked about computer space and the Galaxy game before. There's a lot of different stories there. There's a lot of issues going on. No one knows what's going on anymore. (laughs) That's right. So there are a lot of controversies surrounding the creation of computer space. I like to say that there were two people involved and 10 different stories on how it happened. It's really bad. We're not going to get into all of those controversies again. We'll revisit some of the important ones very briefly in terms of creating this comprehensive story. But if you want the deep dives on what was up with Nolan Bushnell, what was up with Ted Dabney, what was up with where the heck Nolan Bushnell saw Space War in the first place, we have other episodes covering that in depth, covering the evidence. We'll just kind of lightly tread there. To put things simply, Nolan Bushnell was a little bit of a tech nerd. He was never a huge tech nerd. He had kind of gotten into ham radio operation when he was young. When he was in high school, he kind of put some of the tech stuff aside and focused on more what you might call mainstream high school activities like sports and dating and skiing in Utah, (laughs) where he was from. That's the mainstream teenage activity. Not everywhere, but definitely in Utah. He was there, but he wasn't one of these intense 
tech people that we often talk about. But he did have that unique blend that we've talked about before of having some technical aptitude and interest and an entrepreneur's spirit, which is why he was a far better person to kind of launch this whole video game thing than a pure tech head would have been because you need some of that business understanding as well. He was aimless in college. We've talked about this. He was in school for over eight years, 1961 to the very end, December of 1968. He transferred schools in between from Utah State to the University of Utah. He switched his majors. He started in engineering. He didn't like doing the work. He wanted to party with his frat brothers, so he switched to business economics, then finally decided that if he was going to really make a living for himself, he should really stick to engineering, and so moved back to that. I think as much as anything, because he wanted to get out of very conservative Utah, which of course is dominated especially then, but still very much so today as well by people of the Mormon faith. He was definitely more in tune with the counterculture and with the hippie vibe. He decided that he was going to go to California to Silicon Valley to make his fortune and ended up at Ampex Corporation, pioneer in tape recording, both audio tape recording and video tape recording. Of course, while he was there, he was introduced to space war. We've talked about this, and we've talked about why he saw it first at Stanford and not at the University of Utah. Take our word for it, but if you don't, we'll have other episodes in the show notes where you can get the in-depth details of why he definitely didn't see it at Utah. He got in good with a Go player, chess and a Go player, because Bushnell as well was an avid chess and Go player, who worked at the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory by the name of Jim Stein. Jim Stein brought him around to the lab and showed him Space War, which was incredibly popular with the students, grad students, staff, faculty, etc. at the AI lab. Bushnell was just blown away because he did have a background in entertainment. He had worked summers at an amusement park, as we've discussed before. He knew a little bit about how coin-operated entertainment worked and what the economics of that looked like on the operator level. He just saw this game and he was like, this is amazing. Surely other people would be interested in this as well. Then sometime in the spring of 1970, the timelines are very vague. I actually did a whole blog post last year on the timeline of Space War. We'll put that in the show notes. We can use that as a vehicle to talk about some of the difficulties there are in dating exactly when things happened. I'm going to stick with what seems to have happened. And if you want more detail about why I place things where I do, the blog post and previous episodes of the podcast go into more detail. Somewhere around spring of 1970, Nolan Bushnell, in his capacity as an electrical engineer at Ampex Corporation, came across a cell sheet for the Data General Nova mini computer. This is a computer we've talked about before. We've talked about it several times. The amazing thing about the Data General, Nova, was that it was the first mini-computer to smash through the $10,000 barrier. Wasn't the first mini-computer, or wasn't the first computer that was hailed for being way cheaper than the typical mainframes of the day, but because of its efficient and clever design and the increasing prevalence of integrated circuits in this time period, the designers were able to smash through the $10,000 barrier. You could buy a basic Nova for about $4,000, but if you wanted a Nova with enough memory that you could really do anything with it, it was realistically more like seven or 8000 But still, either way, this was incredible for the mini-computer industry. 
seeing that computer with that price is what got Nolan Bushnell thinking, okay, there's that great game at Stanford, Space War. It needs a computer to run. Computers are expensive. But now there's a computer that's almost looking affordable. Remember, it really is almost looking affordable because this is $8,000, $4,000, $8,000 in 1970 money. This is still not something that you're going to have in your house unless you are particularly well off. And there were some engineers that were well off enough that they would buy many computers and put them in their garage. In general, the public is not going to be able to engage with something like a mini computer, even when it comes down in price to the point of the Nova. Nolden knows the economics of coin-op. He knows what coin-op machines cost. He knows the take, the coin drop that these machines get, and how fast these machines earn back their investment. The wheels start turning. It's like, okay, well, 7000 let's say 4000 let's even go with the basic model. Okay, 4000 Okay, that's more expensive than a coin-operated machine. So it doesn't quite work if you just buy a computer to run a game of Space War. But time-sharing is a thing. You can have multiple users on the same computer. So what if we took a Data General Nova and we time-shared it and there were four games of Space War going on at the same time? Well, now we're talking $1,000 per game. Now it's going to be more than that when you factor in that you also have to hook this up to monitors and, and do all that interface work and do controls and whatnot. It's not like we can strictly say that's 1000 per game, but it's, you know, that's kind of a starting point. It's like, okay, maybe if I ran four games on a single Nova, or maybe if I ran six games on a single Nova simultaneously, maybe that would do it. Maybe the economics work that you could do this as a coin-operated product, because those companies are used to spending more on product. This runs a little counter to how CoinOp works, because CoinOp relies on novelty, and it relies on having a lot of different things. Will enough people come to play this one game that you can really keep four instances of it running at the same time? That's a leap. That's a bit of a risk. Of course, the video game industry would later prove that, yes, that is possible. Space Invaders did that. Pac-Man did that. Some of the other hits of the Golden Age did that, where arcades would buy four, five, six, seven machines and put them all in a row because so many people wanted to play them. And I think Bushnell thought that the novelty of a computer game in an arcade, plus just the fact that the game was super fun, he'd experienced it, was going to be enough to drive this. So it's a bit pie in the sky as a plan, but it's not completely insane, just a little insane. This, of course, is when he brings in his office mate, Ted Dabney, because Nolan himself, he has some digital engineering skills, but he'd be the first to tell you that he was never the best student. I mean, he was an engineer, but he wasn't a brilliant engineer. Dabney had a lot more grounding in the nitty-gritty of of actual engineering and also had experience with analog stuff like video, like power supplies, some of these other things that you have to do to make a game— He also had a grounding in digital engineering, but I'm just saying in addition to that, he had that analog knowledge that Nolan didn't have. He brought Dabney into the loop at this point sometime in the spring or early summer of 1970 and was like, hey, let's go. Let me show you this cool game. And he was like, "Okay." And so they went and they saw it. 
Nolan was like, I'd like to make a coin-operated version of that. And Ted was like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. Ted was kind of the guy that would just go along with anything. He wasn't the great visionary or thinker, but he was a very talented engineer, and it sounded like fun. So sure, let's do this in our spare time. They start working out what that would look like. Once they kind of figured out that they could maybe do something with the hardware that would perhaps work, they brought a third member of this partnership in by the name of Larry Bryan. We've talked about all this before, but Bryan was working in the same division of Ampex as both Nolan and Ted, the video file division. He was somebody that Nolan had befriended and played Go with and socialized with. And so they brought him in and they were like, we're going to do this thing, but we need somebody to write the software, write the timesharing software and all of that. Can you do this for us? And Brian's like, sure, we'll try that. The three of them kind of decided that Nolan would be doing most of the digital engineering, that Ted would be doing most of the analog engineering, power supplies, monitor interface, etc. And Brian would put together the programming that they needed, the time sharing that they needed, and then, of course, recreate the game of Space War on the Nova. The Nova could run Space War. In fact, Data General itself had demoed the Nova at the Joint Computer Conference using Space War. We know that because there were advertisements in the trade magazines where they were like, the Nova, which played Space War at the Fall Joint Computer Conference. You know, that's how we know that it really did get run there because, of course, Space War, as we've talked about, we've done a Space War episode, became kind of a poster child and a calling card for any computer that was able to do real-time operation with a display because it was an astounding demonstration of real-time computing with a display, seeing these ships zoom around, seeing them slingshot around the sun with the effect of the sun's gravity well actually exerting an influence and, and shooting at each other. It can run the game, but it's not the most powerful computer in the world. I mean, it's great that they got the price down to between four and $8,000, but they did that by making it a computer that isn't going to be as powerful as some of the gigantic hulking mainframes or supercomputers that are out there. So it can run Space War. It can't run four to six of them. Too much memory, too many cycles, whatever the problem is, it, it can't do that. Brian fiddled around with it. I presume, though I don't know this for a fact, I presume that he probably never even got around to the practical question of, can we make Space War? My guess is he probably just looked at the timesharing aspect of it and was like, no way we're going to be able to timeshare four iterations of this very complex game in a way that we can run that. Because timesharing is very memory intensive, and timesharing works by switching so rapidly between multiple users, as we discussed in our timesharing episode, that... All of them are given the illusion that the computer is working for them and only them, when in fact, it's working for dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people all at the same time and just rapidly switching forth between all of its operations. Time sharing itself is very complex, and I don't think a lot of people really appreciate how sophisticated it is. Mm-hmm. I'll throw a link into TimeShared, which goes into this into more detail when we talked about the whirlwind system. In short, just coming up with how to share a finite resource of calculations amongst a bunch of people is a very tough problem that it took quite a while to solve. Exactly. You can timeshare real-time programs. 
Because even real-time, what we call real-time programs, are actually not running continuously. Even if they're updating the entire program in 1 60th of a second, that's still an increment of time. They're not really consistently running. Obviously, it takes more resources to keep a bunch of real-time programs all running at the same time than it would if everyone was just running through some text-based or asynchronous or, or whatever else programs or are waiting for calculations to get done where the person looking at the screen, you know, they're just waiting regardless of how long it takes. It's not like there's something in motion to give them a sense of what's going on. So that's a lot to ask. I mean, Space War was timeshared at Stanford, but Stanford had this hybrid system that they had kludged together themselves involving both a PDP-6 and a PDP-10 computer from DEC. Those were mainframes. Even though DEC made many computers and some of their other products like the PDP-8 and the PDP-11 were mini computers, the 6 and the 10 were mainframes. Even then, it wasn't always smooth sailing to get time-shared space war going. That was just way too much to ask a Data General Nova to do, and I think that's what Larry Bryan came back and said to them. Well, I know that's what Larry Bryan came back and said to them, was that, guys, this just ain't going to work. Brian probably joined the project somewhere around August, September 1970, just to give a time frame. He spent a couple of weeks in his recollection, looking at it, fiddling around with it in his spare time, and then he just comes back and is like, uh, no, guys, <laughs> just, just no way. At that point, Nolan had some clever ideas. He got to thinking that, okay, well, maybe we can shift some of the more complex stuff to dedicated hardware. We're still going to have the Nova doing the main processing, but we'll have other circuitry in there that's taking care of, say, the background star field that needs to be generated or the gravity effects, some of this other stuff that's going on. Really, that was very common. If you look forward just a few years, that was very common in the early days of coin-operated microprocessor-driven video games as well. When some of the very first microprocessor-driven video games were coming out in 75, 76, 77, even into 78, those systems had a CPU, but a lot of what was going on was still being done by logic, by circuits, because the processors were just not powerful enough to drive everything through that CPU, and you didn't really, in most cases, have the concept of multiple processors working in tandem. You would get dedicated graphics and or sound processors being thrown into machines just a few years later, but not really in the late 1970s. This is a rather visionary leap by Nolan. You know, we, we spend a lot of time, not just us, but others as well, we spend a lot of time getting a little down on Nolan just because his claims have sometimes exceeded his impact. I think it's important to be clear that some of this stuff that he's coming up with, the idea that an arcade could have four or six units of a same game side by side, that was not convention. And it's something that was later proven in the late 70s and early 80s that with the right game, that can happen. So that's visionary. It really is. The idea that Okay, we can do a, a hybrid where we have a computer, which is essentially serving as the CPU. I realize that a computer in this case is not a CPU, that the Nova has lots of stuff going on in it. And of course, it's not microprocessor driven. Its central processing unit is all logic as well. 
But it's kind of a similar analogy where you envision the Nova as the CPU of the unit and then having dedicated circuitry taking care of other functions within the game. That was a very good and novel solution to the problem. And and again, that's something that was used with microprocessor-driven systems just a few years later. Nolan's got himself some good ideas. They can't execute on them in this time frame. So they try this thing. They start making some circuitry to do specialized operations. And they think, or Nolan thinks, I should say, that they're making some headway by doing this. He even gets to the point, and we know this, uh, because I mentioned this before, there's very little documentary evidence from this period. But one thing that we do have is a letter that he wrote and never sent to Data General where he was going to order some data general computers. Now, sadly, we don't have have the letter at this point, but it was entered into evidence in the Magnavox patent lawsuits, and it's described in detail in the depositions. Because it was entered into evidence, there's still a chance that someday it'll turn up someplace in a courthouse or in the uh, storage locker of a law firm or something like that or in a donation of personal papers by somebody who was involved in the case. But at this point, we don't have the letter, but we have descriptions of the letter that were made under oath by people who actually were looking at the letter at the time. So in that sense, we verified it's a real thing. We know that in January 1971, because of this letter, that he was ready to order some Novas, because Nolan thought they had solved it. He thought that they had made enough specialized circuitry that they would be able to salvage this product and still use the Nova. According to the deposition, and even in his depositions, even when he was under oath, Nolan Bushnell was a little self-serving, so you can't take everything there as gospel, even though it was testimony given under oath. But this is an area where it doesn't seem like there would be any advantage to spinning the story, so... I'm as confident as I can be that something like this may have happened, but I would not bet my life on it. Let's put it that way. He says that he went to a place that had a Nova where you could buy time, rent time on the Nova to use it. And he was talking with one of the operators there and showing him his program. And the operator pointed out some calculations that he had done wrong. Nolan at that point realized that even with these adjustments that they've made by moving stuff to specialized circuitry, that they were just not going to be able to do this. That's when he came up with his final big conceptual breakthrough that was so important to creating the first commercial video game. He realized, we've already built specialized circuitry for certain functions. We've got that circuit design. We've also emulated in hardware. I mean, it's, it's hardware emulation. But we've also essentially emulated in hardware certain capabilities of the Nova so that we could test out some of our circuitry, even without having a computer. What if we just took our exerciser, took our Nova hardware-emulated stuff that we've done, build that out a little bit, make it a little more complex, and why don't we ditch the computer? Because if we're doing everything just in logic, by this point, integrated circuits are pretty reasonably priced. The space program, the Apollo program in the 1960s used integrated circuits, and that really drove down the price. And the television industry, TV manufacturing industry, is starting to get into integrated circuits because uh, UHF, the UHF band, has been opened up, ultra-high frequency. 
integrated circuits are being incorporated into some of the newer televisions that are being made to uh, take advantage of UHF. So integrated circuits have come down to the point where they're relatively cheap. Why don't we just ditch the computer? We don't need all of what the Nova can do anyway. We just need just enough to run Space War. Then if we do that, it'll be cheap enough that a single unit of the game will be cost-effective, so we don't need to worry about all that four to six games running on the same hardware nonsense anymore. Let's just make, you know, a single unit out of TTL hardware. Now, this is something that is very fascinating that Atari will come up with very soon as far as creating arcade games that have everything created in TTL hardware. Mm -hmm. All that hardware that they make, they just do graphics on this circuit board. They do the game logic on that circuit board. They do all sorts of crazy things like this. And he's coming up with all of this at a very early point Mm -hmm. in the development and coming up with the concepts with computer space. Exactly. He didn't have the know-how to create all of that himself, but with the aid of Ted Dabney, and even with a little bit of aid from an intern by the name of Steve Bristow, who would later go on to be the very important engineer at Atari and vice president of engineering in various departments at Atari in the coming years, they were able to put together the circuit boards that could do this and have something that looked like it would be viable. They didn't have the game finished yet, but they were able to put some hardware together kind of in the early part of 1971 that could at least move dots around the screen and show that it would be possible to move around and control these spaceships using just uh, transistor-to-transistor logic or TTL hardware. As we've discussed before, kind of by early 1971, they have a prototype in place, and they now need a way to actually make this darn thing. This is going to be expensive. This isn't just something that you can do out of your garage, like an Apple One computer, and then sell it to people on the streets. No, we're still talking about something that you're going to be selling to coin-operated distributors for many hundreds of dollars. You're going to need a factory to make these things. You can't just build them in your garage. They tried interesting various people that they knew that were either current or former Ampex people, engineers, mentors, etc. None of them could really see it. They need a coin-op company, really, to take an interest. They're not going to be able to find an outside group that's going to be a part of this. And it just so happened that there was basically just one coin-operated game company in Silicon Valley in Mountain View, California. Nolan Bushnell discovered them in his telling of it because he was just telling his dentist at a routine dental appointment what he was up to. The dentist told him that, hey, I've got another patient that works for a coin-operated game company called Nutting Associates. Well, I don't know if the dentist knew the name, but at the very least, he said, you know, my patient Dave Ralston works at a coin-op company. You should totally talk to him. As we discussed in our Nutting Associates episode, Nutting Associates was in a lull period because they had had a big hit with Computer Quiz just a few years before, but they hadn't really followed up that product, and the market was getting very stale for the computer trivia games. That market was finally starting to fall apart, so they were kind of in between projects and didn't have technical staff that could really build their next generation of games. So they needed an engineer and a product at the same time as Nolan Bushnell needed a factory and a manufacturing capacity in the coin-op business. 
So it was really a fortuitous match. And somewhere around March or April of 1971, Nolan Bushnell leaves Ampex and joins Nutting. He joins the company as their head engineer and is also doing computer space on the side as a side hustle. He's very specific when he joins the company that that's a side project, that Nutting will perhaps be manufacturing this thing, but it is not a Nutting product. It is a Syzygy Engineering product, the partnership that he had founded with Ted Dabney. It is a Syzygy product that Nolan and Ted will perhaps license to nutting in exchange for royalties. Over the next few months, Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, who eventually comes and joins him, create this game, Computer Space. We've talked about it before. We don't have to go into huge depth about it now. Essentially, they couldn't do Space War because now that they were scaling back their hardware, in order to keep it cost-effective, they did have to cut out some of the more complicated things. They couldn't do the gravity stuff. They couldn't have the sun in the middle of the screen exerting its gravity influence. It was also going to be iffy doing two players. So they cut the sun... They cut two players. Two players wasn't impossible. In fact, there would be a two-player computer space released in 1972, but they decided that that was too much to try to get a handle on at this time. They altered it into a game where a single player is controlling a rocket ship that is in open space. There are two flying saucers. Those flying saucers are the enemy. You're shooting at them. They're shooting at you. And each time one side shoots down the other, you get a point. So the player gets a slight advantage in that they have two targets. But then the game's really hard to control. So the computer gets into the advantage of it always knows how it's driving itself. So I think that's probably, this is speculation, but that's probably why they gave the human player two targets to shoot at. Because they probably thought that would be a little more fair, give them a little more of a chance to score points than if it was just one-on-one. So you're shooting at each other, you score points each time you destroy the other player, it's set to a specific amount of time to play, generally tuned to like 60 or 90 seconds. At the end of that time, whoever has the most points wins, and if the player has the most points, they get another play session, which was a common way. A lot of games in that time period were time-based rather than lives-based, so there was often a reward for being able to stay on the machine for a certain amount of time or score a certain amount of points within a time frame, that kind of thing. That was a paradigm. That's the game, essentially. It's kind of like Space War, but not quite. It captures some of the charm of it, but also loses some of the charm by losing that central star. And it's uh, a bit finicky because it is, as with the original Space War, created with somewhat realistic physics where inertia is very much a thing because there is not an equal and opposite force in space very often stopping you from doing what you're doing. So you just keep floating in a direction until you yourself exert a force in another direction to change your vector. Control is not precise. You don't turn on a dime. You have to maneuver, you have to rotate your ship, fire your thruster in order to go in another direction. And so there's a complex control scheme There are physics that are not what your average person is used to encountering on a day-by-day basis. It's nothing like driving a car. They do this game. It is debuted at the MOA show in October. 
the Music Operators of America, which is the main uh, trade show of the coin-operated amusement industry, which, as we've talked about many times before, was much more a jukebox business than a game business at this time, which is why the show was the Music Operators of America. The games were mostly found in bars at that time because that's who the jukebox people serviced, and so they would put some games in bars and taverns alongside the jukeboxes. Then it was released probably very late November, possibly early December. Again, we don't have exact dates, but definitely in the late November, early December timeframe, and probably didn't enter full production until early the next year in January or February is probably how long it took them to get their assembly line up and running. I want to point something out here because I'm looking at the case here. This thing looks futuristic. It looks sci-fi. It has that unique 1970s feel of old movies dealing with Mm sci-fi. You have a fiberglass case. You have these weird controls on the front. You have this bubble design to it. You have multiple colors. Really, really shiny. Had a lot of flex in it to have it have a sparkle effect. It's a very pretty case. Absolutely. And and that was Nolan as well. He wanted something that looked very futuristic. And so decided to create a fiberglass cabinet for the machine. He designed the cabinet. He designed it in modeling clay. And Dabney located a swimming pool manufacturer, because swimming pools were often made of fiberglass, who could actually do the cabinet creation for them. Yeah, it it was very eye-catching. Bushnell definitely felt that to introduce something futuristic like the video game, it should look futuristic. So yeah, they did that cabinet. They had called it Cosmic Combat while they were working on it. Nutting released it as computer space. I'm certain, even though I don't have official confirmation, I'm certain this is true, because they had had a hit with computer quiz. And so now this is computer space, just like computer quiz. That's the story of the creation, again, in a nutshell. Just wanted to get through that a little faster. If you want the real deep dive, we've got that in our nutting stuff, in our Atari stuff, in our Bushnell stuff. We've covered it. What is the place of this game? That's kind of what we want to look at in the back half of the episode. First, we do have to understand that this was something very new in a very conservative industry. The coin-operated amusement business in the United States was still being run in the early 1970s by the people that had really established it in the 1930s and the 1940s. I'm talking about at all levels, the manufacturers, the distributors, and the operators, that three-tiered system that we've talked about in other episodes. The manufacturers create the games, they sell them to distributors, who then sell them on to operators that actually put them in locations on the street. All tiers of this industry were still being run by the people that basically established it in the 1930s and 1940s. Now, if you're a coin-op enthusiast, you're saying now it wasn't established in the 30s, and I know that. Coin-operated amusements go all the way back to the 19th century. What we think of as coin-operated amusement, this idea that you go into a location that has all of these machines lined up in a row and you put a coin in them and then you play a game. That was really a product of the pinball boom in the 1930s. 
you could kind of say it's kind of funny to think of something that's getting very close to 100 years old now as being modern, but you can think of that as kind of the beginnings of the modern coin-op industry, which was in some ways distinct from the industry that had been present in the 1890s, 1900s, 19-teens, 1920s. These were still the people running the show in the 1970s. The industry had really stagnated in the United States. We'll talk about some of the exciting things that were starting to happen in Japan in the late 60s, early 70s, a little later on in this episode, because they're very relevant to where computer space fits in. Remember that this game is being introduced in the U.S. context and with these U.S. players. The industry had really stagnated, even though there had been some new designs in the last couple of years, like Computer Quiz or like the game Sega was making in Japan. It was a business that was still based on the same kind of games that had been made for the last 30 or 40 years. Pinball had evolved some over time. Of course, we did a big episodes on Gottlieb and Williams, where you can see a lot of that evolution. But since the 1950s, pinball has basically been the same game, even though there have been some modifications over time. That game is old hat. Target shooting games are basically the same as they had been since the 1940s when uh, Dale Gun games in the late 1940s started becoming prominent. Again, there's some bells and whistles on more modern games you didn't find in 1950, but they're basically the same games. The computer quiz games and the audiovisual games like Sega's Periscope are starting to change things, but you've got an industry that's been set in its ways since the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. The locations have basically dropped to just being bars and taverns because the jukebox operators, because of a variety of factors, basically absorbed the game industry. The jukebox people were just putting the games in the same places they were already putting the jukeboxes. You had some arcades still in the inner cities, mostly, both small and large. They were very different than what you think of as an arcade today. So most arcades, I mean, there were some big arcades still around, but your typical arcade in this period of time was just a small space, completely unattended, that just had a bunch of games lined up in them with really no effort at marketing or promotion or offering other kinds of entertainment with them. Because the machines, you know, they were fairly secure. The coin boxes were fairly secure. So, you know, you just leave people to to put coins in them all day and then you'd come collect them at the end of the day. I mean, that's a lot of what it was. These establishments, they weren't very mainstream. The bar and tavern games, that was a little more mainstream, but it was primarily a working class thing, which is no shame. We're not doing class warfare on They Create Worlds. I'm just saying that there was a certain clientele that just wanted to relax and blow off some steam at the end of a hard day at the factory or wherever they were. It wasn't like the arcades just a few years later in the golden age of arcades where arcades were in shopping malls and the clientele were teenagers that were out looking to have a good time and looking to have a challenge. This was a very different crowd. Both the people running the business and the people playing the games weren't necessarily in tune with this whole computer space thing. For one thing, Nutting kind of dropped the ball, I think, personally, on the way that they presented this thing. I think because they were afraid of maybe someone stealing their thunder or trying to copy them, because, of course, the coin-op industry is notorious 
for copycatting. And as we talked about with both Nutting Associates and Dave Nutting Associates, two different companies, Dave Nutting, through his earlier company, Nutting Industries, even ripped off Computer Quiz. Computer Quiz had several knockoffs that came out right after it came out, one of which was done by Bill Nutting's own brother, Dave, for complicated reasons that we discuss in our episodes devoted to Nutting Associates and to Dave Nutting. We've done coverage on both of those topics. I think because they didn't want their thunder stolen this time, they kept it an absolute secret before the MOA show. The earliest report for the game in the trades about what has to be the game is a report earlier in 1971 in Cashbox that says that Nutting Associates is working on a top-secret project that they promise will wow us all when it debuts at the MOA show. They kept it completely secret. With something new like this, I think that's a mistake. Because yes, the MOA show is the time when you debut your new products. Yes, that's your big time when you have all of the distributors and some of the bigger operators all coming together to see your stuff at once. But I think when you have something as new as this, because this is completely outside of their realm, games are electromechanical. They are not electronic. They don't, for the most part, have computer circuitry. Computer quiz, some of the quiz games were the one exception to that. But these games did not have computer circuitry. They did not have monitors or televisions in them. A completely different paradigm, something that they have no idea what to deal with. And these are people that, like I said, have been running the business since the 30s and the 40s. So it's not like they're in tune with advances in televisions and computers and electronics and all of this, because they were young men in a time when this stuff didn't exist or barely existed. Also, their entire thought process on how to do marketing is completely different. If you look back to all of the things that we discussed in early pinball games, early arcade stuff, those marketing materials were just flyers. Mm -hmm. They were just paper with some fancy fonts on it. And then they were mass produced and handed out in order to really promote whatever that product was. Here, we're having to do something a lot more modern. We don't have advertising that really goes towards television, towards radio, towards having something that really has mass market appeal. Right. In this case, we're going to the MOA show, and I'm showing some sort of electronic device to people where they're used to electromechanical. They have no concept of what this game is. They don't have any kind of concept or groundwork to understand why people would even want to play it. To them, it's just a fancy piece of electronics that costs way too much, and no one knows how to really market it or make it so that people want to even play it. I don't even think that there is a marketing department that Nutting Associates actually has that they use in order to really promote their product. They need someone there to actually lay the groundwork and prepare people to understand what this new paradigm is. They had a marketing director, but you didn't market to consumers in the coin-operated industry. You marketed to distributors. You really didn't even market to operators that much because, for the most part, it was the distributor's job to market to the operator. You marketed to distributors. I agree with you. The way you would have to, I think, lay the groundwork for something this different would be to do some kind of gradual hype campaign. And you'd have to do it at this stage. You're still talking, but you're not even talking about doing it to the public. You're talking about doing it with distributors and operators. But instead, they kept it a secret, a complete secret, until the very show where people decide what they're going to order for the coming year. 
I mean, it's not like you can't sell something that you didn't debut at the MOA, because certainly stuff comes out later. But this is the show where you're trying to get your big orders. You need to lay groundwork. And Nutting Associates did not do that. They kept it in a complete secret. You also have to keep in mind how the people at the MOA show actually think. You got people who are used to electromechanical. They're used to traditional coin out back from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, how they do things there. This new electronic thing, they have no concept of. They're not young. They don't have that exploratory inclination to understand something that's new. They don't have the patience for that. They want to know what they're going to buy, and it's going to work out fine and good. If they see this new technology, this new computer space game, that's new. That's scary. Scary new things are different in this kind of industry. It's scary in a lot of different industries. And, you know, and in addition to the fact that it was just new and new things are always scary. I mean, that's a factor. Absolutely. But they had real practical concerns, too, because, of course, coin operated games need maintenance. They are out in public and the public is very mean to these machines. We've talked about this before. They get frustrated and they hit them or they think they can cheat the machine and they hit them. Or they just are walking by and not paying attention and they hit them. I mean, coin-op machines get hit. (laughs) They are very finicky, especially the electromechanical ones. Now, obviously, solid state is not going to be as finicky as an electromechanical machine because there's fewer moving parts. But they are very finicky. They break down often, especially in this period. You have dedicated service people that make the rounds fixing these machines. The locations usually won't have a service person unless it's a really big arcade. But as the operator, you'll have a guy that goes around fixing machines at your various locations. These people are trained in electromechanical hardware. They don't necessarily know what a circuit board is. They don't know what a chip is. If a chip goes bad on a board, or if a capacitor goes bad or whatever, you got to get in there with your oscilloscopes and with your your voltage readers, and you've got to go in, and you've got to see where the bad trace is on that board, and you have to figure out where the bad chip is on that board, and then you have to pop it out and place another one in there. It's a different skill than replacing a stepper or a mechanical relay. I remember seeing in Popular Electronics, the old magazine of the time, examples of people saying, hey, you can learn all this new skills by learning soldering and repairing television. Oh, yeah. There were people who spent a lot of time repairing television. Mm -hmm. That kind of skill was valuable back then. Not so much now because of all of the electronics are very disposable if they break. It takes a lot of effort to go in there and actually tear apart a system and try to fix it. Alex knows this very well in the example of me having to try and fix an Atari 2600. It's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's a completely different skill set, and, and these people are not even sure that their maintenance people will be able to handle that. And you're not going to hire a new maintenance person just to handle this one special machine you have. Going back to the televisions, remember, these machines have actual televisions in them. Now, the tuner's been removed. If you were to take that television home and try to watch TV on it, you would not be able to do it because it can no longer tune a station over the air, let alone via cable or some other method. So they're not working televisions, but they are televisions because there was no monitor industry at this time. So what they had to do was buy actual televisions, remove the TV tuners, and then do some custom tinkering so that it it could accept the signal from the video game hardware. The general public, because there is no dedicated monitor industry, 
John Q. Public isn't going to appreciate that distinction. As far as they're concerned, that is a real television in there. And a television is still a high-priced consumer electronic item. And remember, a lot of these arcades, a lot of these games, they're in inner-city neighborhoods, they're in rougher, working-class neighborhoods, they're in places where thievery is a real danger, especially since some of these places are oftentimes not even well-staffed. The distributors and operators were legitimately worried that people would try to smash up the cabinets to steal the televisions. They'd have been very disappointed when they did, because they wouldn't have worked for anything, but the theft element was a very real fear as well. There's very little report on that show in the trades, on, I should say, the reception to computer space in the trades. There is one report in Cashbox that indicates that the booth was very full, that Nutting's booth was crowded during the show. I think it's reasonable to think that there would probably be some legitimate gawking and some legitimate interest to just try this darn thing out because it's so weird and different. Yeah, that's interesting, but no thank you. Exactly, because it was just too foreign. It didn't seem right, so they didn't take any orders at the show. There are times that Nolan Bushnell's claim they did, but under oath he said they didn't, and that's been corroborated by others as well. I'm pretty sure they didn't take a single order at the show. I would just pause to think that just how devastating that would be for you as a company. Mm-hmm. You put all this effort into a thing. You have all these interests. You have all these people looking at it. But you're just a sideshow attraction. You're an interest, but I'm not trusting you enough to put my money in you. That is devastating for a company at a show like this. The MOA is where you said you get most of your orders. If no one's buying there and you have all that interest, that says something is horribly, horribly wrong. Absolutely. In its initial unveiling, it was something of a failure. But they didn't give up there. They knew they had something interesting and new. Dave Ralston, the sales manager, he started getting it out there. They had connections with some of the California distribution community because they were based in California. They had close contacts. And he got a couple of machines out on location where he gave them to uh, some of the more prominent distributors for free, gave them one machine to place out on location so they could see for themselves how it was going to do. They also had their own coin route. Rod Guyman, the president of the company, had established a coin route for Nutting Associates to bring in extra income. And so they put the machines on their coin route as well. The results were actually kind of okay. The Nutting Coin Root ones did very well. It's kind of funny. There's a producer at Activision by the name—he's no longer there, but I mean, there was a producer at Activision in the 80s named Brad Freger, who wrote a little autobiography of his time in the video game industry, and he was actually friends with Rod Guyman. So when he was younger, before he had anything to do with video games, he had actually served as a collector on the Nutting Coin Route, and he remembers— going to those machines, and just they were taking in lots of money, that it was very successful on the coin route. When you got it out into certain locations, it kind of did okay. It didn't do okay everywhere, but it did okay in enough places. So they got some distributors a little bit excited in it, probably the most prominent one being uh, Bob Portail, Portail, Portal, Portail. I don't know how he pronounces it, but it's P-O-R-T-A-L-E is how it's spelled, Bob Portail, who was a prominent Los Angeles distributor, got him interested in it. He had some success kind of selling the machines. The Nutting gave him an award for selling a bunch of machines, and obviously that's a publicity stunt. That's a way of trying to convince other distributors that, look, somebody did a good job. He got a trophy, so he must be selling a lot. I mean, some of that's just marketing to try to get other distributors interested. 
Bob was also one of the early and most enthusiastic proponents of Pong. And I think that's because he really did have some success with computer space. He really did see that, okay, the video game can do okay on the route. There's that aspect to it. Some distributors were doing okay with it, but most distributors continued to not pay attention to it. It was foreign, it was weird, and it did not do well everywhere. Because, as I said, the working class, and I don't want to, it's not even a class thing. It's not even about whether you're working class versus professional class, because this isn't about class warfare. If you're a worker, doesn't matter if you're blue collar, white collar, working class, middle class. When you're going to the bar to blow off steam, you want to have a few rounds with the fellas. You may want to engage in some competitions or contests. You may want to shoot a little pool, play some darts, whatever. But it's geared around stuff that you don't have to think about. You've been thinking all day. Your brain's been working all day. Even if you're working class and your job doesn't involve much thinking, you've still been engaging your person in something all day long, and you're just done with that. I think what you're trying to get at here is the general public is not very technical during this time. They just want to have fun that involves things that they can understand and have grown up and relate to. Mm -hmm. That is pool, drinking, darts, stuff like that. Yes. Very simple games, stuff that has a little bit of challenge to it, but nothing that involves a lot of rules to learn or something that is very difficult to play. Mm Mm-hmm. The most complicated electromechanical game is just going to be a game of skill. Pinball. The person that's going to see computer space in the bar, in these kind of situations, they don't want to learn something new. This is going to be new, scary, different. Right. There's going to be these weird controls on it. There's going to be this giant flashy screen. I don't want to think about how to fly something around. I don't know what a computer game is. That's another thing you have to contend with. People do not know what a video game is. John Q. Public has no clue. Right. This is before video games have really taken the public by storm. You're not going to have someone who's going to really understand what's going on. Up, down, left, right, BA. We have no concept of that at this time. Yeah. Controls are very difficult and hard to understand. I remember that there's people who are older who work at my place who have difficulty with a computer because they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s. They don't have the knowledge or the experience of doing something that we might consider very simple. Alt-tabbing. I've had to show people how to do that, how to copy and paste. Alex has dealt with that too. (laughs) You're dealing with people who did not grow up with technology. They don't have that background there. And any kind of new technology and the controls there are just going to be so difficult to understand and master, they're not going to spend money on it. I'm going to go spend my money on beer. I'm going to spend money on darts. I'm going to play money on pool. I'm going to spend money on pinball. That's the most technical I'm going to get. You know, and, you know, to draw a modern parallel, that was the philosophy even with the Wii with Nintendo, is that video game controllers had gotten very, very complex in order to get a wider segment of the population back into video games, maybe people that had played an NES when they were younger but had never played a video game since then to get them back into video games. So by simplifying the controls there, they had the Wii. Even though the Wii was a fad that Nintendo couldn't sustain that level of success into future generations of consoles, it brought people in because it was going back to something simple. Computer space had its problems, and the distributors were very resistant to it. You know, the the famous Bill Nutting quote that I alluded to at the beginning of the episode was that we made 1,500 of them and we had to sell them practically by force. 
practically by force. I mean, he's exaggerating a little for dramatic effect. Obviously, they're not actually putting a gun to a distributor's head and making them an offer they can't refuse, you know? I mean, there's no horse heads being left in uh, distributors' bedrooms here. You would be very unfortunate on the day of my daughter's wedding if you did not take this wonderful video game system that I have. Otherwise, we will have to be very unpleasant. Right. So, you know, obviously they're not really doing it, but but it's it's a quote that's meant to encapsulate the resistance that distributors had. Some of them, like Bob Portail, were fine with it, but most distributors, they took them sometimes, not always, but they didn't necessarily understand them and they didn't necessarily push them very hard on their operators. The ones that probably saw the most success, though, I would think, were the ones who were near college campuses where you had people who were younger, college, maybe even some high school kids, Mm -hmm. who actually were willing to put in the time and effort to learn this thing. And then they go, oh, cool, it's following physics that I learned about in my classes. That's definitely going to be a bigger draw for people who are younger and more technically inclined. Exactly. I do think that part of the reason why there was some success in San Francisco on the nutting route was because college students were more amenable to this thing. They weren't the common demographic. I mean, yes, around college towns, you know, there would be college bars serving college students. But just in in the wide, vast United States, that just wasn't the common paradigm. We think of teenagers playing arcade games in shopping malls. But that was a late 1970s thing. Late 1970s, early 1980s thing. That wasn't an early 1970s thing. However, it was starting then. Now that we've talked about all the traditional reasons why it is often considered not necessarily a financial failure, because they did sell 1,500 of them, they made money, but why it's sometimes considered culturally a failure is the reasons that we just discussed right now. And those are the traditional reasons. Some of those are reasons we brought up before. Now let's look at the other side of this and the side where the game actually matters. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, did a blog post on this. We'll link that in the show notes because I want to give him due credit for being one of the people that uh, was part of this reimagining. This was also a period of time where the coin-op industry was actually starting to change a little bit. This was the period of time when the shopping mall arcade was just starting to become a thing. They did not become a force in the industry until the mid-1970s. Jules Millman's American Amusements and its Aladdin's Castle arcades, shopping mall arcades, are starting to come in in this time period. We've talked about that phenomenon before, how Jules Millman was the one that really came up with the idea of the shopping mall arcade, which is, okay, if we're going to do arcades in a way that the general public will accept and where we can make money, they need to have strict rules and they need to have staff there constantly in order to enforce those rules. That's how you make the arcade palatable to modern America. Because like I said, I mean, a lot of arcades, they were just these small spaces with all these machines and no rules, nobody looking after things. That's how they got their bad reputation of being smoke-filled and the places where teenagers go to hide when they're playing hooky or, or whatever is because there was no supervision of these spaces. I can only imagine with all the little nooks and crannies that there's just all these little opportunities for someone to entertain people, have an arcade thing in a laundromat or something like that. There might have been a little of that. 
I think most of the operators were dedicated operators because what the operators would do is they would have a whole string of locations. I mean, you couldn't really make money operating these things in one place. You would have to have a, a whole coin route of 6, 10, 12, if you were a bigger operator, 20, 30, 40, 50 locations where you have machines. So they were dedicated operators. It was kind of a self-fulfilling thing. Coin-operated games became less popular, so there wasn't a lot of money in it. So you really couldn't afford to staff your game rooms because that was too much expense. But Jules Millman was trying to bring back an earlier era. He was essentially trying to bring back the era of the Penny Arcade, where high-volume foot traffic guaranteed that you would have a steady stream of visitors, which meant that your locations were profitable. This is something that really didn't exist anymore, and Millman's brainstorm for doing this is like, okay, we'll make them respectable by having an attendant, but if we're going to pay an attendant— We need one of these high-volume foot traffic locations where we can put a lot of machines in a single place and have a lot of people walking through, or we can't justify the expense of the employees. Okay, so shopping malls. This is the modern equivalent of the town square where so many penny arcades thrived, is the suburban shopping mall. The architect of the suburban shopping mall, Victor Gruen, of that whole movement, his idea was that the suburbs needed something like an inner city town square to connect people. The suburban shopping mall, in its classical form, a self-contained, climate-controlled building with a courtyard in the middle and department stores anchoring the ends, that's the model that Victor Gruen came up with, and that's the kind of establishment that Jules Millman started targeting with his arcades. And it was a tough road at first, but he was able to get into some shopping malls that were maybe not doing as well and therefore were desperate enough to take a chance on him. Once other mall owners could see that his locations were respectable, then, you know, could expand from there. You see, Jules Millman was trying to break into the new. So this is different. He is a young man. The reason he decided to get into coin-operated games, because he actually worked for a distributor. He worked for Worldwide Distributors, which was a big Chicago distributor. The reason he wanted to get into arcades is because working as a distributor— He was just kind of appalled. He had gotten into the coin-op industry because he loved coin-operated games. Then when he got into the industry, he was shocked and appalled at how unsophisticated these people were. They just didn't understand business. He thought that you could really make this a real business if you put the effort in, and that's why he came up with this arcade thing. So we spent the first part here talking about the failure of computer space with this old generation that had been running things since the 30s, since the 40s. Well, now here's the young guy, Jules Millman. He is trying to build something new and exciting that brings in a new class of people. This guy understands computer space. And this is something we really didn't know, didn't really understand until Ethan Johnson got into the old newspapers in newspapers.com. Because this isn't about going to see what the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune has to say about video games. This is about going into local newspapers and seeing what the reaction is when the new arcade comes to town. And what Ethan Johnson did is he did searches for Aladdin's Castle or for computer space or all of this kind of stuff, tracking the spread. What he found is that in the early 1970s, when Aladdin's Castle opened an arcade in a community, new shopping mall arcade, they would, of course, make sure that there was local newspaper coverage. You know what? Just about every single one of these articles mention computer space as a game that's in the arcade that Aladdin's Castle is opening. 
Jules Milman is still alive. Some of the other people from the early days are still alive. We haven't tracked them down. We haven't been able to talk to them to confirm this. You know, what this says to me is, first of all, I mean, these local newspapers, they don't know much about these fancy new arcades. You know that the marketing person at Aladdin's Castle is telling these local reporters what they should find most interesting in the arcade. So what it means when every single one of these local articles is talking about specifically computer space, and that's often the only specific game that's mentioned. They talk about computer space with its high-tech fiberglass cabinet being in there. That's about the only game mentioned as opposed to just coin-operated amusements generally. What that says to me is that the Aladdin's Castle marketing people are highlighting to the local press and all of the places they're opening arcades their computer space cabinet. It's definitely the big flashy thing that they want to highlight. Yes, because it is sleek and futuristic and fancy. It's fiberglass and it's computers and it's monitors. Remember, the space race to the moon had just concluded a couple of years before this, so space is still a big thing. Star Trek is on the air. Space is big in this time period with a certain set. So they are highlighting the new and exciting because they are trying to bring a new respectability to arcades and penetrate new markets with arcades. They see computer space as a flagship product to do that. Now, quite honestly, the computer spaces themselves probably did not take in a lot of quarters for Aladdin's Castle. Because you still run into the same problem. It was a finicky, hard game. It is not a good game to introduce a new entertainment medium. But it was a draw. It was an allure. Aladdin's Castle was buying these things to sell their vision of a modern arcade. A vision that at the same time was also being promulgated by the new electromechanical games coming out of Japan, like Sega's Periscope, like Speedway, which was a Chicago Coin, an American company, but it was based on a Japanese game. There's a technological renaissance that is happening right now in coin-operated games. It's a loss leader that is sort of setting the groundwork, setting the framework, getting the public used to this idea of video games. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Computer space, I think, played a role, and, and Ethan thinks plays a role, and I agreed with him, played a role in setting the stage Not necessarily for the birth of video games, because Pong and the Pong phenomenon was a phenomenon that was still largely targeted at bars and taverns and all of these traditional venues. But computer space was part of the movement to bring about the arcade of the late 1970s and early 1980s, the arcade of the Golden Age, the arcade where Space Invaders and Pac-Man and Defender and Asteroids all made their mark. I think it was an important selling point to help make these arcades acceptable in society. So in that sense, even though you would quite correctly say that computer space did not launch the coin-operated video game industry in any meaningful way because they sold so few units, nobody copied them. And remember, it's a huge knockoff market. When Pong was successful, there were dozens of knockoffs. Computer Space had exactly one knockoff, Star Trek by 4Play Entertainment. Star Trek without a license, they just put the name Star Trek on it. You know, it didn't sell well. So, I mean, there was no cloning. There was no mass adoration for the game. There was no dozens of companies entering video games because Computer Space existed. That didn't happen. So it's very easy to look at that and say, well, it didn't start the video game industry. And that's true. It it didn't start the video game industry or the coin-op video game industry, if we want to drill down more specifically. But I think in large part, it did help set the stage for the golden age industry 
when your Aladdin's castles and your shopping mall arcades dominated the field because it played a role in legitimizing those locations with the general public. So that's just another interesting way to look at it. It could be very successful in specific places. We already talked about how the Nutting Coin uprooted it actually did very well in Silicon Valley. We talked about Bob Portale getting his award. The final thing I want to talk about is this interesting gentleman that I discovered in the old newspapers by the name of Larry Carrickman. Larry Carrickman was a Cornell student, class of 1969. He stayed as, as an electrical engineer in the Ithaca area, where Cornell is, Ivy League school, after he graduated college. You know, Ithaca's a big college town because Cornell's a big deal as a college town. He had been exposed to space war at Cornell. He was not and still is not an avid video game player at all. He's never even owned a video game console in his life. But he was exposed to space war at Cornell because it was there like it was in so many university computer labs. And he got to play it a bit. A friend of his, another electrical engineer, though even though they were both electrical engineers, they actually met because they both were on the college radio station together. Another friend of his by the name of Victor Chow saw a computer space in early 1972 at the Cleveland airport and, of course, immediately recognized that this was a coin-operated version of Space War, which they were familiar with. And he told Larry about this, and Larry got kind of excited. And so Larry sought it out, and he located one in a Philadelphia airport in the fall of 1972 and got to see one as well and got excited about it. They actually decided to go into business together. They thought this would be a great thing, and they decided they'd go in together and buy a couple of these. You know, I was talking about how most of these aren't side hustles, but in this case, this actually was kind of a side hustle of operators. They created a company together, and they bought a computer space machine. I interviewed Carrickman. I was looking this stuff up about computer space for the 50th anniversary because I did an appearance on the uh, Video Game History Hour which we promoted at the time, where I talked about the 50th anniversary of computer space. So I was looking in the old newspapers on newspapers.com for information, and I came across this guy, Carrickman, in New York that had success with computer space. And it's like, that's interesting, because that's not a very common name. I was able to track down Mr. Carrickman, and I interviewed him. They decided to buy one of these machines and put it on location, and it's a perfect encapsulation of what the real problem was, I think, even more so than player resistance, it was this distributor resistance because he called Nutting directly, Nutting Associates. He spoke to Nolan Bushnell and wanted to order one of these machines. You know, this would probably still be in early 1972, uh, you know, even though he saw one in late 1972, his, his partner saw one earlier. Or, I mean, his memory is talking to Nolan Bushnell, but it, maybe he's wrong. I mean, it's, it's 50-year-old memory. But anyway, he did call Nutting Associates directly and wanted to order a machine. And of course, they're a manufacturer, they don't sell to operators, so they put him in touch with a local Syracuse distributor. He bought a machine from a distributor in Syracuse. The distributor could care less about it. I think this again speaks to the distributor resistance we talked about before. They sold him the machine, but they didn't really give him the time of day after that. When he had problems with the machine, which didn't happen often, but did happen once or twice, he didn't get help from the distributor. He actually called Nutting Associates to get help with the machines. In the three-tiered system, the distributor is supposed to provide some service and help to the operators that they sell the machines for. But again, I'm sure this old-line Syracuse distributor just wasn't equipped to handle that kind of thing. And so they were just like, eh, whatever. I think that was a lot of the problem everywhere is that distributors were just like kind of, eh, whatever. 
Carrickman and Chow were very interested in this. And so they bought this machine and then approached a pizza place called Elba Italian Kitchen. The owner of the pizza place was looking to expand, to remodel, renovate, and expand, but needed capital to do that. So they saw this as a prime target. Carrickman and Chow went in and were like, hey, we've got this machine. Why don't we put it in here? And, you know, your share of the take can help pay for the renovations you want to do. The guy was like, "Okay, let's do that. This was a college hangout. You have the right kind of clientele who would be really interested in this kind of game. I like science. I like realistic games. I can understand something that's new. Exactly. You know, it's kind of funny. They accidentally discovered the Chuck E. Cheese formula before Chuck E. Cheese because what they found is this game was very successful in the pizza parlor for the same reason that when Nolan Bushnell did Chuck E. Cheese, that they decided to make it a pizza place because pizza takes time. You would order your pizza and then you'd have to wait around for a long time. You need something to do. This guy didn't have coin-operated games before. This was not a location that had pinballs. So this was the only game in the establishment. Lots of people had lots of time on their hand, and lots of these people were college students, younger, more savvy on this stuff. Cornell's a very good tech school. You have this savvy crowd there, and it was a massive success. It paid for this guy's renovation and expansion, the pizza parlor owner. It was a massive success. So they bought a second one, and they put it in a bar. Again, another college hangout. It wasn't one of these working-class bars. It was a college hangout. It wasn't quite as successful at the bar because it had more competition for attention. I mean, there were other coin-operated games there, for instance. But it still did okay there as well and brought in a good bit of business because it still stood out even amongst pinball machines with that fiberglass cabinet and everything. Then they actually made modifications to the games. After the initial interest kind of started petering out, they adjusted the games. Now, they didn't actually modify the circuit boards, but there were other settings in the game that were not the baseline settings that actually made the game a little easier. So they went in and changed some of the settings. Instead of having eight-way directional shooting, they changed it to four-way directional shooting. They made the missiles of the flying saucers not travel as far across the screen. As they said in the article from the time, they lobotomized the game to make it easier. They kind of recognized that the difficulty was kind of inhibiting the general acceptance as well, so they made it a little easier, and that brought in more people. Then this is the very interesting thing. Because they had both been involved with the college radio station, they're no longer students at this point, they graduated, but because they were involved... With the radio station, they still had ends with people at the Cornell University radio station. They convinced another one of their friends, Pamela Peterson, who was responsible for some stuff at the radio station, to produce and run some radio advertisements for computer space targeted at the general public in Ithaca. The radio station was college radio station, but it was a powerful enough station that it broadcast all over the county. It could reach all corners of the county, and they actually ran ads where they recorded some sound effects of people playing the game and, and the sound effects of the game, and then you know did voiceover about, you know, come play computer space. These may be the first audiovisual. They were only audio, obviously, not visual, but these may be the first audiovisual ads ever made for a video game. There's a good chance that the Magnavox Odyssey original television ads slightly preceded them. 
it would all be around the same time, but there's a good chance the Odyssey preceded. But certainly the very first time that an arcade video game had ever been advertised on radio. Arcade games weren't advertised to the general public until like the early 1980s. That was an incredibly interesting thing to do. And so by confronting the difficulty problem, by going out and actually publicizing the game with players, and by targeting specific venues with a younger, more adventurous audience, they had a lot of success with those two computer space units. I mean, a lot of success. I think that the problem with the game was not so much that it couldn't have been a success, but that distributors were too nervous about the new technology. Operators often found themselves in locations that were not going to embrace new technology, and players were not introduced to the game in a way that would make them excited to play it. I think Computer Space could have been a bigger hit if what happened in Ithaca had been recreated on a larger scale across the country, but of course, at that time it wasn't. Even if it only sold 1,500 units, even if it didn't inspire competitors and inspire other games to come after it immediately, etc., etc., it's clear that it played an influence in the way the coin-operated industry reinvented itself in subsequent years, and it deserves a little bit of credit for that. Certainly, from an inspiration level, it was the direct influence on Atari's Tank in 1974, which was a massive hit at the time. It was basically, uh, you know, why don't we take the one-on-one shooting-at-each-other combat of computer space, except make the controls less dumb. That was Tank. The controls and the physics, I should say. And of course, it was one of the main inspirations of Asteroids, which is Atari's best-selling game of all time in arcades. The basic conception of Asteroids was, why don't we combine the best elements of Space Invaders and computer space and make something that can compete with Space Invaders? It had some of that design influence, but mainly I just think it, you know, it was a big part of the movement into the modern shopping mall arcade. I still think we don't want to overstate its influence because it was still relatively uninfluential compared to something like, say, Pong. But I don't think we can just dismiss it anymore as this game that never really inspired or incited anything because the evidence now shows that it did play its role, as I hope this episode made clear. To me, it really speaks to the fact that computer space laid the groundwork, that it really allowed for other games that came afterwards, Pong, Space Invaders, so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. to really be able to penetrate the market. It helped prime the pump. It helped get the public used to the idea of a video game, of a monitor inside of a cabinet, everything related to it. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, as I said, the first distributors that took a chance on Pong were the few distributors that had had success with computer space. So the whole reason that Atari was able to get a manufacturing line going for Pong, as we talked about before, is that they were able to get a bank loan from Wells Fargo. They were only able to get a bank loan from Wells Fargo because they had a purchase order for 150 Pong units that they could use as collateral on the loan. They got that purchase order from Bob Portale, who had been the distributor that had gone gung-ho on computer space. He was willing to give a purchase order even though the entire industry still operated on handshake deals at the time, essentially. They didn't like having paper. But he was willing to give them a written purchase order for their loan because he was so convinced that this was going to be a big thing. 
he had to have been convinced that it was going to be a big thing because he had already seen the power of video with computer space. In that sense, it also played an important role in the beginning of Pong as well, just a more behind-the-scenes kind of role. Computer space has certainly been a contributing factor in so many things that we rely on in the birth of the video game industry. It helped Pine to Pump. It helped be a loss leader. It really helped people come to terms with, what's a video game? What is it that makes a video game? Absolutely. That leaves us with the wonderful question I ask as I get the computer in space to turn back home. What will we talk about in our next episode? Well, we've been focusing on individual games a lot recently, doing several deep dives in a row on specific games. It's probably about time that we go back a little bit to our bread and butter, which is the history of game companies and the history of the game industry. One company that we have not managed to talk about yet somehow is the company Adventure International. Scott Adams Company. No, not that Scott Adams. Not Dilbert Scott Adams. There are two Scott Adams. But one of the pioneering companies in text adventures on microcomputer platforms. The company failed relatively early in the computer game industry. It failed in 1985, so it's kind of faded into the background compared to some of its contemporaries that lasted much longer. But Scott Adams was certainly one of the pioneers of this new industry, and his journey is really the journey of the beginning of the computer game industry as a whole. There are so many interconnections between what he was doing and how the whole thing flourished. So he's a really important pioneer. His company is a really important pioneer, and... Gosh darn it, it's about time we talked about that. In that case, we will have to go on an international adventure next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.